Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of the Connects podcast. I'm Steven Onzo, producer of the Connects podcast, and today we'll be continuing an interview recorded in December 2017 with Lacey Trayball and Daniel Gandhi, director of autonomous vehicles at Nextroid. In part two of this two-part series, we'll talk about the early stages of Dan's career, where he earned a triple major in physics, computer science, and math, and how he's applying that background to solve the complex obstacles of automotive autonomy. We'll also learn the difference between passive and active safety, and how smart systems can keep passengers secure. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so I tried looking at your LinkedIn profile. Yep. There is not much there. Yes. <laughs> it, it was like, it was anemic. I was going, like, is this the right person first? But then I saw it's like Stanford. And I'm like, this has to be the right person. Like, <laughs> right. So if you could talk just a little about um, your academic background, maybe. Sure. Start with like, you know, what you studied in for your undergrad and some of the projects that you thought were like cool and formative and technologies that you were really into and then like lead up to, and then you ended up here. <laughs> sure. So basically I would say that what I'm generally interested in are complex real-world problems, um, problems that bridge different disciplines. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those are areas where we, as a society, have uh, a lot of room to grow. Um, we've tended to pigeonhole ourselves into specific disciplines and you know, basically mastered them. But as you get to problems where you are having to draw on a lot of different disciplines, and try to combine them in ways to solve problems that are really tactile. Which is like real creativity. Exactly. There's a lot of room to have impact, there's a lot of room to grow there. And so um, I think that's a common thread that you'll see throughout my background is, is an affinity towards that. So during my undergrad, I went to Brandeis University and I triple majored in physics, computer science, and math. That's awesome. And if you think about how those disciplines fit in together, they kind of <laughs> they fit into that, that framework. Um, you're talking about understanding how things work physically through the physics element of it. And then software is basically what makes the world go around these days. So math I, is how to describe it. Exactly. Yeah. Math, you can model anything that you need to. So Without it, you can't do this because you can't describe it. Computers operate on that. Right. Like you need to speak that language, right? It's- exactly. And you start seeing connectivity through through math when you start seeing how things kind of gel together in ways that you didn't expect. And because math is the underpinning of so many different disciplines, you can start seeing how they all relate to each other and how you can extract basic tenets of how you should operate in any discipline based on the mathematical principles that that feed into it. I also like that with math, it's a great validator of truth because it's like well-formed or it's not, right? And so you're getting this, or especially early on, like before you commit a bunch of time to something, it's like, is this a solid thing? Like, does this concept make sense? And you can apply that to so many things, just like that methodology, the rigor, I guess, behind it and stuff. So yeah, right. I totally get those three majors. That's an awesome (laughs) set of majors. It was not intended. It was accidental. You accidentally stumbled into three majors. Yes. My plan was always to major in physics, and I was going to double minor, which was not super uncommon. Yeah. But I essentially front-loaded my schedule a lot, and that meant that I was taking a lot of classes that would cover majors in math and computer science. And I was in senior year, and advisors were like, if you took one class in this topic, you would you'd get a major in it instead of a minor, and same thing on the other. That's so funny. And so I basically added a couple more classes to my schedule. Um, and ended up with an accidental triple major. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 
awesome. In my undergrad, I, I did do a, a senior thesis project, and I was looking for something interesting to work on that, again, would kind of fall in line with, with the three things that I was talking about. And we have a, we had a lab at Brandeis that um, was called the Gray Beal Lab. They partner with NASA, and they look at how humans could operate for a long term in space. And so one of the experiments that they do is they have a, a rotating room. So they put you in a rotating environment, and that is how you would simulate artificial gravity in for a long space mission. Right. Um, but because you're creating art gravity through rotation, you create um, There's side mechanical effects. mechanical means, right. So you essentially have Coriolis forces that are happening all the time. And so they ran this a series of interesting experiments. They sit you down in the room, and they have you move your arm to try to touch a, a target. Um, but the room is darkened, so you can't really see anything except the target. And as soon as you start moving your hand, the target disappears. So you're essentially saying, oh, I knew where this was. And just like you would reach for something without looking at it, like you see something, you start reaching, you look away. Yeah. They're doing that. Um, and your, your body has mechanical feedback mechanisms that tell you that you're on track. Right. Um, and so they would have you move your hand in this manner, and they have a motion tracking system in the room that's IR that's tracking how your hand actually moves. And what happens is in a rotating environment, you miss because the room is... your kinesthetic awareness is not going to compensate for... Well, it actually will, but it takes time. So... Oh, that's right. It has to learn it. So as you move, you'll miss, and your body will be like, wait, we didn't end up where we were supposed to be. And so if you do it again, you'll actually adapt. (laughs) um, And you'll converge back to the correct line. Um, If I put an object in your hand, what happens is now you have a new mass, and you don't... You haven't understood how that mass will basically react to the environment. Yeah. And so you'll miss again. Um, and as you keep moving it, you'll adapt. Where it gets really interesting is if I, if I start the rotation up and I have not let you adapt to anything and I put an object in your hand and you move and you miss, you will slowly adapt to have it move correctly. And if I take the object out of your hand, your hand is already adapted. So basically, your body was able to go and decouple what correction was required for itself and what correction was required for whatever you were holding in one fell swoop. Wow. And so they were trying to understand how that could be possible, what types of feedback your hand would experience from objects. And so my thesis project was to basically try to build a device that you could hold that would track pressure across your hand as you moved an object around. And that way, they would be able to couple the motion of the hand through the motion tracking system, as well as the forces that the hand experienced at different points, so that they could try to couple, you know, there are certain nerves at certain places in your hand and all the different pads that exist, and how do they then couple with your central nervous system to create the correction? Those are fun things to think about. Yes. <laughs> like, huh. So they were just holding like a ball of sensors then at that point? Yeah, it was actually a cylinder and it had sensors on the outside of it, so when you grasped it, it could tell, it could basically report where um, where you were feeling certain forces as you moved it. Awesome. So that was the undergrad work? Yes. And then you were like, I have not had enough of school. I have my three <laughs> triple <laughs> major and I need more. So did you take a break between undergrad? You went straight? I went straight to do a, a master's in electrical engineering at Stanford. I was looking at it more from um, Physics is the theoretical framework that engineering is going to be the application of it. In picking electrical engineering, it bridges. You can be very computer science-y in 
electrical engineering, you can be a lot more towards hardware. And so I picked a, something that was in the middle that I could span space. Um, and that's also where I started to focus more on robotics and more on control as specific applications. Basically seeing that robotics and automation is kind of the epitome of multidisciplinary. You have lots of different things that come together to make a robot, but then the robot interacts in the real world, and now you have everything that it could possibly interact with. And it's a field that there's a lot of momentum in right now. Yeah. So there's that means that there's a lot of opportunity. While there are, are things that you could work on that also meet that criteria, if there isn't a lot of investment, it's, it's still hard to make an impact. And so robotics was something that looked like it was going to have an inflection point. And so it was appropriately it, poised for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Yeah, it's it works really great in the lab, right? right? And then you put it in the actual context, the thing has to operate in, and yeah, emergent behaviors. Right. And <laughs> things you, happen. And you have uh, you can see that in the progression. I mean, robots have been primarily deployed thus far in factory settings, where you have industrial uh, automation type. Exactly. You have a lot of control over the environment. You have cages that keep make sure that everything that the robot works on is is restricted to what they are they um, really do you don't have as soon as somebody walks into a work cell robots stop right so uh, they do they yeah always pretty much really well i guess they're, they're huge and heavy so it's a right. huge safety exactly osha probably would not be too thrilled with right so you're seeing <laughs> from the research side yeah you're seeing a lot of people trying to work on collaborative robots but now you have this, this problem of how do I have such a large, heavy thing with this wild card in its environment, which is a person. And so while you're trying to ensure that a person is safe, how do you have a robot and a person work together? Right. Not only safe, but they have to achieve some objective. Right. Right. It has to be productive. We, we cannot just exist in the same space and call it a day. You're trying to actually do something. Right. So what did you do when you were at Stanford then? Mostly I did coursework there in sort of traditional electrical engineering pieces, uh, controls, robotics. One of my classes was experimental robotics, where we looked at trying to come up with an interesting task for a robotic arm. <laughs> and the professor was always, I was looking for students to come up with some novel project that would kind of push limits. And, you know, you where you really wouldn't know if it would work yeah. well, um, just to see if you could come up with something cool to do. And we had this old industrial arm. It was a six-degree of freedom arm. Um, and we essentially took on the project of trying to get it to throw a Frisbee, which is... The flick of the... Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it, it was it was pretty challenging. And by the end, the project had to, had to shift into something that the robot could actually attain. So industrial robotic arms are not known for being particularly agile. No. Um, and... Or graceful. Right. And yeah. so the, the amount of <laughs> the just all the complex motion you have to do to get a Frisbee to move right. it is, is pretty tough. So we tried experiments with it. We, and you have to get the Frisbee to rotate as well as get thrown. Um, so we tried a, diff a lot of different ways of doing it. And we actually ended up with something where there are these toys that you basically, they have kind of a small helicopter blade. And you, you, uh, there's a motor underneath and it kind of spins them up. And then it launches them up and they kind of pop up and float through okay. the air. Yeah. So inspired by that, we essentially took a, 
a fabric frisbee, which would be light enough that we could mm -hmm. um, like the nylon ones, kind right? Of, yeah, and and we attach the mechanism to it that would make <laughs> it mimic this this toy. So then you could put a motor on, you could spin it up at speed, and that would create a lot of stability in the frisbee itself. Mm -hmm. And using the same mechanism, basically what it would do is when you'd stop the motor, it would pop the frisbee off, um, and that means that the arm could actually start doing a throw with this frisbee. And when you want to release, it'd create this pop and there'd be immediate separation between the, the right. robot. Right, so then and the it would lift and it would be, yeah. Right, and so then you could actually throw a Frisbee across a room to somebody and we actually, uh, for kicks, we tied in a camera to it so it would just track the color red. Mm -hmm. It was Stanford and Stanford yeah. color, it's cardinal. So <laughs> um, it would actually find somebody wearing red and it would throw the Frisbee towards them. That's funny. Them, so. You created a targeting system. With a Frisbee. <laughs> sure. And then when did you graduate? I graduated in 2008. I'd also say that during, while I was in school, I interned at a lot of places. Really? Um, I started interning maybe when I was like 15 or something. Um, and they were also across different industries. So uh, the first place was in the RF microwave realm. Um, I was at a company that made little RF ICs mm -hmm. that end up in your cell phone and that type of thing. Uh, this was in the early 2000s, so they weren't as pervasive. Yeah. But these are the, the, the pieces that kind of enable what we have as wireless communication being yeah. so pervasive today. Um, and so they were working on, they had come out of a defense side, and then they saw that, you know, commercial applications were starting to become more attainable, and they were moving into that space. Um, and so when I was there, I worked on ways to basically create automated tests for their chips where tests are can be kind of problematic. You can very easily have human error in trying to test it yeah. that gives you wrong results. And so they were looking to create test stands that would control all the instruments and inject the right signals and you could have chips that come out and... and we know they work or we know uh, what the issue is. Right, you know the performance <laughs> and you know that they work properly and yeah. that type of thing. And then I, I continued there and um, I actually made basically uh, engineering tools uh, that they would post on their website and they would kind of draw customers in mm -hmm. um, to help them calculate different aspects of what their jobs would be. So the, the first one that I really did was there's a device called a, a mixer. It's it's pretty much used everywhere uh, in a communication system. It, it You use it to take something that's a low frequency signal and step it up so that you can broadcast it and then step it back down so that you can process it. And they have all these side effects that you create all this spurious <laughs> uh, signals yeah, along do. the way. So this was a tool that actually mapped it out for you. So you could go and and it would create a chart that would tell you, here's all the different spurious signals that you're going to end up with and how much power, what power they're going to be at. And that way you could see, as I say, I'm going to operate in this uh, frequency range for my transmit, and this frequency range for my for my base frequency, and this frequency range that I'm going to be sweeping over to step it up and down. You know where am I going to run into all the problems? So it would help you map that out. Cool. So you wouldn't have to measure it yourself. It would actually calculate it. Correct. And you could you. and you could plan it yeah. basically. So you're, you're, as part of your system design, you would you would use this as a step to make sure that you didn't have some oversight that basically made your system not operational by the time yeah. you built it. <laughs> like, what do you mean I don't have enough power to get it to do this this way? Right. What do you mean these frequency ranges aren't working right for this? Or you have like essentially a spurious signal that sits right on top of your real one so close that you can't filter it out in any way. And now the whole system does just doesn't behave the way that it needs to. So 
Cool. So you did that. Yep. And then I went to a company that was making circuit simulation software. So they essentially were looking at trying to make a circuit simulator that could scale to huge circuits. So if I want to model RAM, where you have like hundreds of thousands of transistors that all have to operate together, right now what would happen is people would model like small segments of it. Right, and then um, they would try and extrapolate exactly from how, that. how that would scale. Mm-hmm. Here, that, that size now is orders of magnitude larger because you could more efficiently simulate larger circuits and at higher frequencies. And so this was a, you know, a small team of basically PhDs out of MIT that were trying to create a disruption in the market where they could topple major industry competitors. And so I worked with them and on modeling circuit components that their customers would need to build up their systems. Cool. And then after that, I went to the MITRE Corporation Essentially, MITRE is a nonprofit that is set up to provide system engineering resources to the government where the government can't bring in staff of that ilk. So MITRE is the in-between between a primary defense contractor and the government. There's somebody who can check and create specs and whatnot. What they also do is they have a lot of their own internal research projects where they're trying to stay up on technology. And I was there at a period when they were very interested in in netted sensors. So can you go and create networks of relatively cheap sensors and have them communicate so that you can have capability over large distances at lower costs? Uh, An example of a project was um, we were trying to create a, a sensor fence where you could put an aerial fence over the US border. And you want to see, I can detect any sort of low-flying aircraft that are trying to cross the border. Normally, you would have an expensive radar system that you would deploy. But because of the curvature of the earth and terrain masking, you can't put one of those frequently enough to cover the entire border. But they have extremely sophisticated capabilities. So now, can I try to replace some of those capabilities with something simpler, but that I can just kind of spread everywhere? Yeah. Um, But net it out so I can correlate and integrate and take all my data and... Exactly. Yeah, a useful picture. What we did is we actually took a, a radar that you'd have on a boat, like your small craft, like mm-hmm. a $4,000 type of radar system that you'd put on there. And we modified it so that instead of like spinning, it would create like a, a beam, almost like a radar trip line in the sky. And then we'd also put acoustic microphone array. And so now you could essentially, if anything, cut the line, you could detect that that happened, and you'd have microphone array that would tell you the direction that it generally was. So you could do DF. So you, you could, had enough. Yeah. Right. So you could basically figure out that there's some object there, and you could get an acoustic signature on it. And we basically built these sort of homegrown nodes, and we would go to uh, like airports, and we'd set up like near the runways, and we'd right. put these nodes down, and you could you, it would find aircraft as they crossed the line. And then the idea was that these are relatively cheap. You could spread out, yeah. and then you'd have more expensive centralized stations that would have things like high-resolution cameras and thermal right. and, and, and visual. And then they would then be able to train themselves to latch on to whatever this unknown object was. And then that could then be pre-processed, and you'd have an operator somewhere who might be you know, on surveilling station or hundreds of miles of platform that's in the sky. Or, exactly. Yeah. And so now you're connecting all the data together, and you, you're trying to 
replace the capability of something that was much more expensive and covered far less area. So. All right, so that was internship number four. You had some crazy internships. Yeah. So you ended up then after that one where? I started at MITRE when I was at the end of my undergrad and I kept going back to MITRE while I was at Stanford, um, working on projects during breaks or, or things like that. Um, and then after Stanford, then I got my first real, full-time job. So. Which is where? <laughs> that was at General Motors. Awesome. So what did you get to do there? I worked there on active safety and autonomous driving systems before the modern hype and push in that area. This was the path that the OEMs were already on. So what's active safety? So active safety, passive safety is what people think of as safety currently. Though basically passive safety is everything that protects you after a crash has occurred. So airbag. So your airbag, your seatbelts, your explosive pretensioners, your your just the structural elements and trying to absorb energy, all of that is mm -hmm. passive safety. And if you look at accident statistics, injury rates, we're kind of plateauing in terms of how much you can do with materials yeah. in some form. Uh, once an accident has occurred, how much can you do to save somebody's life or reduce the amount of injury? Europe, for example, has been having a lot of problems with density of pedestrians. And you have car accidents with pedestrians. Sure, I can create a cage around the driver, right. but what do I do about the guy outside the car? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so people have experimented with like airbags on the outside. Oh, I've <laughs> seen those. I've seen the cars with those. Yeah, I thought that was a joke. Like it, it ended up in my Reddit feed yeah. once. And it was yeah. like, is this a meme? Are they being funny? Like, no, it was, yeah, right. an experiment. <laughs> and you'll also notice that cars have a higher belt line, have a higher hood. A lot of that is around the fact that when you have really low cars, they kind of cut your legs out from under you if, if you get hit by one and you end up in the windshield. And if you get hit by the windshield, it'll, it could kill you. But if you can get a person over the car, then, then they balance enough that they it balance, they, they're more likely to survive. Yeah. You, you don't want to have all the energy just like come together in with the person impact. trapped in the windshield on the impact. So you're seeing these things that people don't necessarily recognize as safety elements, but they're around yeah. safety regulations for trying to protect people. You're like, he bounced three times. That's good. Right, exactly. <laughs> Physics, guys. <laughs> Is there regulation that says they have to do certain things like this, like heights for hoods and... I'm not sure what the regulations actually are. Huh. I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing crash dummy tests in locations with the dummy outside the car to see what happens. Um, another piece with the, the passive safety side to it is if you think about how much a vehicle weighs today versus how much it did, um, a car from 15 years ago probably weighed a thousand pounds less than it does today. If you look at what the power of an engine is today, the efficiency of an engine is, they're countering each other. I'm adding more structure to the car, I'm making the car heavier so that it can be safer to meet you know, increasing safety regulations. And then I have to have an engine that's more efficient and more powerful to pull that car. Which and that's why and that's why you actually see fuel economy not explode, despite the fact that technology is, is becoming way right. more capable. The fact that you can have a Corvette cruise on a highway and get over 30 miles per gallon is like a huge amount of technology that, that went to make that happen. And then you can hit the gas and have 450 horsepower Yeah, it is a huge feat. And when you say, oh, well, then how come we, I don't have common 100 mile per hour gallon cars, it's because we've also increased the weight of cars. 
active safety starts to address all those things. We start to say, can I prevent the accident from occurring? Can I mitigate the accident? Can I remove energy prior to the accident? And so these are the technologies that you're seeing in the car. Simple technologies could just be warnings to drivers. I'm going to have- The beeps when you approach something too close. Exactly. So you have a a forward collision alert. You'll have like a lane departure warning. Um, And you're seeing that these things are becoming more standard in cars. Yeah, my car has it standard. It has the, the wheel will vibrate if I am going to travel out of my lane. I can take my hands off it. And it's a Honda CRV. They were like, when I test drove it, like, you can take your hands off. It's like, I'm good. (laughs) That was the most unnatural thing in the world to ever do was to get on a freeway, be driving about 60 miles an hour and take your hands off a wheel and trust it. Right. Yeah. That was a trip. But yeah, so they are becoming more standard because it's definitely not an option I was seeking. But I love that I have some things I can auto set. Like one of mine is um, at certain speeds, it, like it'll detect, like if you keep going like this, judging by you know what is in front of you and it senses, you're going to hit it. So it beeps, it gets angry at you. That's what right. my daughter said. She goes, it yells at you. <laughs> and, then it, and then you don't. And it'll apply the brakes. Right. It'll start pumping brakes for you. So you don't do the mistakes. Like, um, like I was talking to my friends and she was saying with it that she was in a Starbucks um, drive-thru and she was on her phone and let her foot off the brakes and the car stopped her from hitting the car in front of her. So like these little accidents, right? That, I mean, they account in those statistics that you were talking about, right? It's whiplash can happen. Like all these things can, you know, these bad consequences, the cars are not, you know, they're overriding user error, I guess. Right. Which is nice. (laughs) And then you look at the opposite side and you look at what kills people in, in car accidents. And you're talking about high speeds, you're talking about, you know, lack of attention for a short period of time. How do you start covering those situations? So you can basically attack the problem from both sides and say, I'm going to make it so that you don't run into these minor problems that it's really easy for the car to cover safely. Yeah. And then you can look at these more complex scenarios yeah. and say- Especially with the time scales being so much shorter. Right. Yeah. And you, the car doesn't have the capability to necessarily do the optimal thing. Uh, it just doesn't have the information and processing to do that. But what it can do is say, you know, we're going to crash into something. I can see that we're going to crash into something at this point. If it was going to be a, a lethal accident, we can take that down and we'll, we'll turn into a serious injury, a serious injury into a minor injury and so on and so forth. Right. And you can do that by basically just trying to shave off speed of impact, like right at the very end. You know the hit is going to happen. And the reason that you wait till that point is because the driver can actually avoid the accident entirely far later than the car can because you can steer. So you could steer away to avoid something, but steering away is a very dangerous act for a car to take on its own. It doesn't know where it's steering into. So Yeah, it doesn't know that there's people on the side of the road. And, right. Yeah. Is somebody running up from the from the back? Is there a guardrail? Is there a tree that it may not be able to detect super easily? Are crossing a bridge? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it takes a conservative action but one that can can save lives in and of itself. So there are all these small things as well. So for example, when you're, I don't know about the Honda system, but when you're looking at what options are available, as you know that accidents are looming, you can actually start preparing the car. So for one thing, some vehicles have seatbelts that have motors in them, so they can actually take out the slack and pull you back into the seat so you're anchored to the car in yeah. advance. They are so that you don't whip out. 
Right. And during the crash, you ideally want to be as anchored as possible. Right. And if you right now, one of the things that they do to do that is there's an explosive pretensioner in the seatbelt where it'll fire and it'll like yank the belt super hard to pull you back into the seat before the airbag goes off. That is anytime anything explodes in the car, it's a huge cost to repair. So they can't be wrong, which means- And there isn't no injury associated with it. Right. Yeah. And you have, especially with senior citizens, you have issues of like, you know, breaking a sternum, that type of thing, when you have types of force that you're talking about during a crash. Internal bleeding. So given those, this allows you to be a little more active. I can start pulling out slack. I can anchor you into the car and I can be wrong because it's a motor, It, it can let go. I don't have to have a reaction where I have to be right, and in order for me to be guaranteed to be right, I have to make it really late. And because it's really late, I have to be very aggressive. Right. Um, I can actually soften that whole process. So something like seatbelts to get somebody in place, you can actually prepare the braking system so that you have more braking authority when you hit the brake. There are all these different things that you can do. That but the car acts as a system and balances these actions. Right. So that there's the goal of minimizing the damage, right? Yes. As other things are applied or as other things are discovered in the system, right? And it can weigh them appropriately. Yes. Too, and then compensate so for it, that. It can go and say, I'm not sure that there's something wrong. I'm warning the driver. Yeah. I want to make it sure that if the driver thinks that there's something wrong, that they have as much authority as possible to do something about yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm going to prepare everything. It's like a heightened sense of alert. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And if they don't do anything, then I'll take my conservative action at the at the last minute to right. try to do something. And then no harm, no foul, kind of. Because you're right. not doing the crazy action that's not reversible. Right. We didn't blow an airbag in your face. We just pumped your brakes a few times. Yeah. Right. The automatic braking systems, the aggressive ones, the ones that are... Basically, in the industry, it's it's a little hard to tell from a consumer standpoint, but there are systems that just have some minimal intervention. There are mm-hmm. systems that intervene um, substantially. Aggressively. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's based on how confident the, the manufacturers are in terms of- Really? In terms of how, what one, their philosophy for how they want to move into this new space, as well as- For example, if I have a system that automatically brakes and I'm on the highway at 60 miles an hour and it falsely automatically brakes, an aggressive system can apply basically maximum braking force, which will put you at like a G of D cell, (laughs) um, which is way more than a person actually ever needs to be experiencing or or, would experience on their own through. They never execute a a braking maneuver of that magnitude. So imagine you're going down the highway and suddenly out of nowhere, you experience a, a 1G D cell. There's traffic coming up behind you and they're not used to braking that hard. You're gonna get hit from behind and you're not be able, gonna be this able to intervene because your mess looks horrible. Yes. You're not in a state because you're just startled at this point as to what in the world's going on in my car to yeah. intervene. So because of that, you may, as a manufacturer, you may not wanna be so aggressive or you may wanna wait till you're very sure, in which case the impact the system has is minimized. You might say, oh, we've developed a system that's very capable, and because it's so capable, we can be sure earlier, and we can intervene sooner. And so you have, from a consumer standpoint, you basically see that these features exist in the car. You don't know how well they perform or what they actually do, and so you you have people like the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety and National Highway Transportation Safety Administration like starting to bake these things into crash tests. As time goes on, you'll start seeing 
just like you see what's the front crash rating, you're going to see what these responsiveness the, ratings exactly. and stuff are. And then understanding what the consequences of being on either end of a spectrum for a responsiveness thing would be. Right. Right. Because there's pros and cons to both. So, yeah. That's so neat. I had never thought of that. Just scary because I drive a car. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, where? how long were you at GM? Uh, about three and a half years. And then you went to? I came to a company that's uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Vecna Technologies. It's a, it's a smaller robotics company. They kind of play in a lot of different spaces. Uh, they had a, a medical division where they did software for patient self-check-in and interfacing with patient medical records and these sorts of things to make it easier for you to do your billing. And so, for example, they, they have a system deployed at every VA hospital and where they have kiosks where you can sign in yourself so you don't have to go up to a receptionist that can check all your insurance information and you know you can show your bills and schedule your appointments. So Vecna did things in the medical space and then they also were always trying to work in the robotic space. So they had some things that bridged those. They had a robot that was developed to basically do medical delivery inside hospitals. So you could deliver food, you could deliver medication, you could deliver things <laughs> in the same spaces that people are. And that's important when you're looking at what your medical costs look like and how much time you have nurses running around just like shuttling food back and forth. Yeah. Um, so that was something that, that Vecna was trying to address through a robot like that. I worked on more of their research side. Um, we were working with manipulation systems, so robotic arms. And what you'll see in, when we talked earlier about industrial robotics and, and um, factory robots, you typically have a very large, heavy arm. And what people don't realize is that its lifting capability is actually really small. If we're being, I think, generous, you would say that it were like 10 to 1. So a 400-pound robot would be able to lift 40 pounds at best. Um, and I would almost say not optimally. Right. Yeah. Vecna was looking at technologies to start to flip the ratio. So basically they used... Instead of uh, electromechanically actuated robots, they hydraulically actuated the robots. And so we had a smaller arm that might have a 40-pound weight could lift maybe about 100 pounds. Um, So you have robots that can now do, like, pull-ups if they wanted to. (laughs) The trick there is that hydraulics are far more complicated to control. You could say that hydraulics is a realm that fell out of favor at some point. They became the realm of construction equipment and heavy industrial machinery and systems were understood for that purpose. Aerospace control surfaces. When you start getting into, I want to have like fine control where I can have a robotic hand or arm that can lift objects that have substantial weight. I want to lift a 50 pound box of something and yet not crush the box. The control has to be far better. I was researching ways to do that. So you could actually have the same type of control that you have in electromechanical systems. In a hydraulic system. Cool. And as you start looking at robots moving into human spaces, that becomes doing human scale tasks. Exactly. So when you talk about mobile manipulation, I want a robot that can move an environment, pick up things, put them down, reorganize things. I can't carry around a 400 pound robot that can lift you know, 20, 30 pounds. And then clear the room every time you need it to perform a task. Right. <laughs> okay, everyone out. <laughs> right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Connect Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 
If you have any questions or suggestions for future interviews, please be sure to reach out to us either on social media or at podcast at rti.com. Thanks and have a great day.